This one sounds weirdly familiar. Oh. It feels like I should know it. This isn't good. This isn't good. <laughs> I feel like there's not really any you should know. Because it's hard with frog calls. Maybe there'll be a day when we get them all, but we're still yet to get one right. So okay. if you get this, I think. What did you think of the call? Do you think it's a frog? Do you think it's a toad? You know, that sort of. I think it's a frog. Okay. I think it's from North America. I think it's from like the southern US. <sighs> this is what's frustrating is it feels familiar. But I'm also completely unsighted. You've travelled, Ben, as well, so you've kind of played yourself. You don't know where it's familiar from. Yeah, well, or it's familiar from having listened to the frog call <laughs> for something completely unrelated. Well, shall I put you out of your misery? Because you've already gone quite far down the road. Oh, thank path. goodness. Yeah, it's not a frog. It is, in fact, a toad. It's a natterjack toad, oh. which is a species that we have native here in the UK. It's a widespread European species, really widespread. I'm not going to list all the countries it's from. Southwestern and Central Europe, essentially. It likes open, well-warmed landscapes with light, sandy soils. So I've seen this toad. I saw one for the first time recently, actually, on the coast of North Wales, and it was in a sort of a sand dune habitat. I saw three of them. Oh. But they're this very warty, very beautiful... Um, toads with the classic like horizontal toad pupil very very warty skin sort of like a light to dark green base color but then they have this like fluorescent green stripe down the back speed stripe yeah and the scientific name is epidalia calamita you know it sounds pretty calamitous. calamity toad. but yeah but what's cool about that is that calamita i don't know about the latin root but i know it's italian for a compass needle and oh. the stripe down the back of this frog is very thin and pronounced, and it does represent the needle of oh, a compass, which I think... That makes sense. I think... And you can use them as a compass, right? You drop them in water and they'll point north. Uh, about a quarter of the time. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, again, it's another species which uh, is and in decline because of anthropogenic pressure. They like these like mid-level successional habitats, heathlands, and they also like sand dunes. Um, and obviously, in particularly in the UK, we also like sand dunes people. And so yeah, we'll go people stamp on them. Little toads. Yeah. But, the um, sand dunes rather there are than, some areas. than the toads, I mean. They seem to be doing quite well in some areas. But anyway, there's these really cool toads. And the reason which I selected this call was because of the paper that we're going to be discussing. I should have known. I should have known. Yep. Yeah, you had all the clues at your disposal, Ben. But yeah, that's why it's familiar. Yeah, exactly. So to be fair, I think of all the, yeah, Natterjack's still pretty niche toad. I wouldn't have expected anyone to get it. But yeah, the paper we're discussing this week is by Moore, Bergamini, Vorberger, Holder, Regger, Bula, Egger, Schmidt. That's it. And it's published in 2022. Bending the curve, simple but massive conservation effort leads to landscape scale recovery of amphibians. Published in Proceedings of the Natural National Academy of Sciences. And yeah, one of the frogs, or one of the toads, I should say, featured in this paper is in fact the uh, Natterjack toad, Epidalia calamita. Mm -hmm. This paper that we're talking about, we're basically doing a good news conservation episode, aren't we? Yes, I... I yes. <laughs> Although the second one, I don't know if it's necessarily good yeah, news. Yeah, I don't think the second one's really good it. news. It's news. We got a bit of ahead of ourselves, really, didn't we? You were like sending me them. I didn't read it. I just knew what it was about. And I was like, yeah, we'll just do a good news conservation episode. Well, so the point, the point is the first one is good news. So we'll <laughs> Yeah. Everybody just latch onto this first paper and the positivity and the optimism that comes out of it. Yeah, I guess um, 
Yeah, good news. Everyone always says good news second, don't they? But we're doing good news first, so be it. But yeah, essentially, you know, you read the literature about conservation and a lot of science, conservation science articles discuss solutions to conservation problems, but usually it's just sort of like a proposal. They're not actually doing it. And when they do do something, they don't always test to see whether it works. So this paper is cool because it's a big scale conservation project. Over 20 years. Very Over 20 years. Yeah. This is a monster amount of data we're talking about in this paper. It's outrageous. Yeah. 20 years across the entirety of Switzerland, correct? Yeah. So we're in Switzerland, a country famous for its beautiful mountains, for its cows with bells and chocolate. But and it's frogs. Maybe not known for its, not nice. I wouldn't say it was necessarily known for its frogs, oh, but the Swiss frog, beautiful. Hmm. But they do have frogs, toads, and newts. And this study takes place in one particular state, which is called Argau, which is densely populated, highly urbanised, with managed forests and intensive farming. Sounds just like the entirety of the UK. Yeah, sorry, I, I said over the entirety of Switzerland. It's <laughs> no, the entirety of this area. Yeah, but back in the 90s, the authorities in Switzerland or in Argau noticed, well, we got a bit of an issue here. All of our frogs and toads and newts seem to be declining, or at least many of them are in dramatic decline. And so they basically set about at the state scale to build hundreds and hundreds of ponds. And then not only that, but also... Like literally hundreds, though. Yeah, it was hundreds. And um, set up a monitoring program to see... Right, okay, we got all these ponds, and they were monitoring both new and existing ponds. And they were looking to see when we build these ponds, do animals come, do amphibians come and colonize them? And then do they remain there after years have passed by? And like you say, they did this over 20 years for hundreds of ponds. Each pond was visited on average like five times. So it was very, very thorough study. And yeah, they wanted to see how all of this pond building would affect the occupancy rates of amphibians. Is it actually increasing how many ponds are occupied by amphibians in the state of Argao? And the news was overwhelmingly positive, right? Yes, there were a few sort of, the more you dig into it, the more you get like little species specific sort of issues. But yeah, overall, I don't think you can say that building ponds was at all the wrong idea like this seems to be an absolute winner how many species are they looking at uh 12 12 and pretty much all bar two saw improvements overall yeah all but two saw improvements in how many ponds they occupied over the 20 year period yeah yeah which is amazing i mean literally that's just proof that building ponds is good and we can dig into some of the reasons why it wasn't necessarily beneficial for all species well that's what's nice about the paper is because it's been done over a long time period, are pretty relatively confident in these results. Da, 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 da. It's now you can start digging into the more specifics of like, okay, over the next 20 years, how do we improve this? What needs to be changed? What worked? What didn't work? These species are sort of recovering, so we'll continue doing it for these species. These species are not quite as, reco- you know, very few of them are not doing as well. What do we slightly modify to make sure that they're accommodated for too? And this is mm. incredible baseline to work from. Yeah. And so, um, I mean, you know, there's 12 species of amphibian. We got the European newts, we got frogs and toads. But should we just quickly mention a couple of the ones which weren't, didn't seem to benefit or at least didn't benefit as much? 
as the others. Yeah, I think so. I think that's the, those are the more interesting stories. As long as we've highlighted enough that overall this was a wicked success. Because <laughs> what you don't want to do is, oh. this is good news. Even though we're sort of oh, focused on the ones that didn't news. work as well. It's more yeah. the idea of improving rather than being like, oh, but... Mm. <laughs> no, yeah, I just think it's interesting. Yeah. And also, one of the species is um, Epidalia calamita, right. the Natterjack toad that we literally were just talking about, that we just heard the call of. And this species didn't seem to increase overall its occupancy of ponds across Argyle. But they think it's because this is a species which prefers very large, but also very shallow ponds with fluctuating water tables in open areas. Basically, and certainly this speaks to the breeding ponds I've seen for this species in Wales, they like it essentially to be a sand dune area with very shallow but large pools of water just like sitting on the surface mm-hmm. and these have to periodically dry it's really crucial for this species that they dry in the summer because otherwise you start to get if you have water which isn't ephemeral it stays there all year round you end up getting fish and other predators which this species just can't compete with so um essentially the ponds they were digging probably were not designed with this species in mind it might be that you know they were trying to dig ponds and i know there was a lot of variation in the ponds they were digging but perhaps the ponds were staying year round and that does not suit the natterjack toad they need them to be dry for part of the year yes they what were they they were saying only three percent of the new ponds had sort of a big surface area with fluctuating water tables so they like you know only three percent so that's where you see Some of the Nanajacks doing okay, but overall not doing as well as the other species. So, yeah. <laughs> no, they, there is some variation, you know, it, but maybe you need more of these ephemeral ones if you want to target that species specifically. Yeah. And you would expect that, like with any kind of broad scale conservation measure like this, the sort of like common species or generalist species will probably benefit the most anyway. Right. But yeah, another one which I thought was cool was um, Elites. Obstetricans, which is the midwife toad, they also didn't seem to fare so well. But they think that's because that is a species which needs terrestrial microhabitats. So, like, basically, it needs things on land that are features that it can use near ponds. And they use the example of stone walls. I know that that species likes hiding under like concrete slabs and stuff. I'm sure in the <laughs> in the wild, the wild concrete slabs. <laughs> yeah, well, unfortunately, Ben, that's what you get in these highly urbanized environments. You get stone that's walls and concrete get, slabs. Yeah. They're actual preferred habitats lost to time but yeah they need these sort of like rocky outcroppings near ponds and if ponds didn't have that they weren't happy so you know that's probably why some of these more specialized species didn't respond so well to pond construction and um they also raise an interesting point about what they're mimicking in the landscape by creating these ponds so obviously there's this massive pond creation drive going on you've got all these new ponds springing up all over the place and um that kind of sort of temporarily simulates flooded meadows or like a floodplain right because it's like the initial inundation and a lot of species or like some species they use the i am example of bombina variegata and the natajack toad again and bombina variegata is the uh they're the old fire-bellied toads beautiful yeah they really like sort of like flooded marshes successional species is what they call them right exactly So they like it when something's first inundated and it's brand new. There's like no predators anywhere. It's just basically water sitting in on land with nothing about. They really enjoy that. But then as the water has been there for a a longer period of time, you start to get vegetation around the pond. You start to get vegetation in the pond. And that brings a whole host of other animals and species, which these 
toads and frogs can't necessarily compete with. So they're kind of doing well in the short term, but then as the ponds become more established, they tend not to be found in them. Well, it does highlight this point that they sort of say, if you want to conserve a species like that, you almost need like an active pond refreshing management. Yeah, which I found quite shocking. They mention that and they say that actually that is something which conservationists do, which I'd not heard of. But yeah, they basically go out to a pond and like restore it back to day one they scrape everything out right. so it's as if it just formed, like a reset which, for these successional yeah. species which i mean it sounds really expensive it does sound expensive it also sounds quite dramatic because you know you're going to be pulling out everything from a pond which has gotten to be well established yeah. i can imagine if you came along and witnessed that without any context a group of volunteers has just come out and reset reset a pond to zero you'd be like, they've killed everything. Well, and they probably will have done a massive harm to other species living there that like a nice, stable, mature pond. So, I mean, it is, you are balancing these things. Yeah. I think it really highlights more than anything that actually what's probably the better route is to never lose your sort of water, water meadows, flooded meadows, floodplain sort of systems to begin with. And then you've got a river that will do it for free. Yeah, but isn't it nice to walk through a town centre and see a river completely bounded by concrete it on is, both sides? It is, yeah. To see it completely trapped in there like a tiger in a box. It's, yeah, I'm rushing fast. Yeah. Underground ideas. Take that river. Can't be seen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they also had a look at sort of some um, habitat features that were near to ponds and whether or not they had an impact on the success of pond colonisation. Yeah. sort of briefly what they found was that the best thing to do was construct ponds close to forest, far from roads, and also near to other ponds, you know, at the very broad. Yeah, so the idea of near to ponds, so it boosts colonisation chances. You've got a lot of species here that have limited dispersal capabilities, so little legs can only carry them so far. If you put a pond nearby, more likely to get there. The roads one's interesting because there's all sorts of things that cause issues with roads and amphibians. I mean, you've got the whole salting roads to stop them from icing and things like that you've got noise you've got other pollutants you've got direct road mortality of dispersing amphibians yeah loads of stuff playing into why roads aren't brilliant so that's not surprising to see it is worth pointing out that these like what you said quite broad and it does have sort of differing impacts on different species too yeah yeah. yeah, it's really important to note that they're like, yeah, individual species had very different reactions to the presence of roads or forests or ponds nearby. And so, yeah, there's very much not a one size fits all. The good thing that they say about that is that because those associations with the habitat features were generally weak for individual species, no pond is wasted. Yes, if you build a exactly. pond, it will yeah. be beneficial to something in some way. Yeah. Like, there's no ponds where they were just like, oh, nothing's What calm. a waste of Re- making a pond. Yeah. No. And I mean, you know, I think that will really resonate with people who've dug ponds in their gardens, even if they don't know a neighbour who has a pond, even if they don't, you know, they live in a seemingly quite urbanised setting. If you dig a pond in the UK, it's only a matter of time until some frogs and toads or newts show up to lay their eggs. Well, and even if it's not frogs and toads and newts and things, it's invertebrates. Birds are using it. Yeah. Like the amphibians will get there eventually, surely. But uh, ponds ponds are... Yeah, <laughs> we've, we've lost so many wetlands. I mean, that's what they opened this paper with, that wetlands and, and areas like that have been so so dramatically hit Battered. that almost any any improvement is good. <laughs> and yeah. the data really shows that. 
So yeah, pond creation works well in Switzerland. One of the reasons that I thought it was cool, and I think it's probably the last thing we'll say about this, was the reason that pond creation in Switzerland is so successful is partly due to the fact that Switzerland was glaciated in the Pleistocene, right? So pretty much most of it was covered in ice. And apparently in areas which were glaciated, you have a tendency towards amphibians, which are pond breeders because they had to find like standing water on the surface. There's not this like wealth of riparian river habitats. You know, like if you go to the tropics, you'll have a frog that lives underneath the waterfall. You'll have a frog that lives on the trees overhanging the thing. You'll have a frog that lives Epiphytes and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Whereas for these temperate ecosystems, there's just not that diversity of habitats, and the, the ponds were such a huge thing that they had to rely on. And well, especially so as a result, ponds mimicking like meadow and floodplain stuff too. Like they're close enough that they can be used for the things that aren't technically ponds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just thought that was a fascinating little um, little reason why pond construction works yeah. so well in Europe. Well, I like the um, way they couch that comment too in a sort of like, do not take these results as super generalizable. This is potentially very switzerland specific because of those reasons and be careful when applying it to another location to understand the sort of geographic or geological history of the location to know if ponds are actually something that would help your amphibians or not yeah which i really liked so let's move on from some conservation great news the frogs toads and newts of this particular region in switzerland seem to be doing very well to a what was pinned as a good news story, but then upon reading turned out to just be kind of a savage. Um, this is by... I, the reason I brought it up was I thought it'd be at least an interesting discussion point because, yeah, but it's only a note. Yeah. It's only a note. And I apologise in advance. I'm about to butcher some names. This is by Biakzuala, Rinsanga, Lianzela, Malsalma, Mwansanga, Dekamson, Van Lakchuana, Toshawing, Lal Tlan Kuaha and Lal Remsanga. Wow, that was hard, but I hope I didn't completely butcher those. And this was entitled Collection of Vulnerable Nests with Eggs for the Captive Incubation of King Cobra Ophiophagus Hanna as a Conservation Strategy in Mizoram, Northeast India. So, King Cobras. Do you like King Cobras? No, right. I remember. Yeah, they're okay. So, um, King Cobras famous for many reasons one of which is that they're the only snake species where females actively construct a nest from leaf litter or other plant material it's quite a charismatic thing to be getting far- is that true are they the only one i don't know it's very unwise to talk in absolutes in that sort of way yeah i mean there's lots of snakes which lay on their eggs i don't know that any are sort of like it's the gathering of the nest materials and i would love to see a video of them doing this yeah this is what i think i'm thinking of yeah, like Malayan pits are sitting with their eggs, and I don't think that they build a nest. Certainly, I think what's safe to say is the king cobras build the most substantial and obvious nests. The best nests. Yeah, if, if you... If, yeah, okay. <laughs> and so the females build the nest. They lay eggs in this mound of rotten vegetation. They guard it. Um, they sit round. They're not near it all the time, but they'll be like coming and going. And sometimes they have like a chamber in the top of the nest where they can actually get in with the eggs and just sit in there out of sight. And that's really nice. That's a great thing. But unfortunately, the local community in Mizoram, people generally have a deep rooted fear of snakes and they're all equally treated as deadly animals, which of course king cobras can be. And so they're killed without hesitation. All snakes pretty much killed without hesitation in this area. And um, the authors of this paper, basically, because if people discover there's a king cobra nest, they're inclined to smash them. And so 
currently they think that translocating the nest, which is where they basically come along, get the female if they can, all the nesting material, all the eggs, bunch them up. They take them back to the university in Mizoram, set them up in like a sort of temporary enclosure where there's um, like mesh or other material to sort of surround the nest so that when the babies hatch, they can't just slither off. And then what they do is they leave them in there, let the mother incubate the eggs. And then when the eggs all hatch, they go collectively release mother and babies within five kilometers of where they originally found them. Yeah, 5.6 was the worst case. Best case was 1.1 kilometers, an overall average of 3.9 kilometers, which, you know, it sounds a lot and it is a lot, but king cobras move a lot. And if the alternative is them being smashed, then it's probably better. Yeah. Yeah. 5k. <laughs> I mean, you could, yeah, if you're lucky, you're probably within its, in an area it knows. I guess it kind of, you know, I would just, I would say like, I mean, you know better than I do of how much these snakes move, but it is a lot. And so, yeah, I, many of them probably were within places they knew, but I would guess some weren't. And obviously that may not have the best outcome for the snake. But as you said, what can you do? If it's a choice between getting smashed or not getting smashed, I'd rather just take my chances in a new place. Yeah, basically. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I just wanted to... I picked this note, well, partly because it's about King Cobras and that's sort of a rare thing, so that's nice to see. But more is just a potentially more extreme example of translocation, because I know that translocation is a, a thing that comes up again and again and again as like a active conservation strategy to keep snakes safe. This is probably just one of the more extreme examples that I've seen documented in a paper where you're just scooping up an entire nest in one go, <laughs> incubating them and then returning them. I wish they had rates of successful nest hatching, egg hatching alongside, because I'd love to know the sort of ratio of eggs that are hatching it's, versus you, not hatching. They do. It's just in the supplements. It's actually on the thing if you scroll all the way down to the bottom. Where is this? They've got the supplemental material. Oh my gosh, this is even better than I even. Oh, I take it. I take it all back. Yeah, and there's lots hatching. I mean, it seems like fantastic rate. Just at a glance, like yeah, like well over ninety. Easy ninety. Like you're dropping one, maybe two eggs. There's a few that have the full, full clutch. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's amazing. How did I miss this? Because this is what I was thinking while I was reading it. Was the the nests that we've seen in Thailand where you get. I don't know, 20, 30 eggs, and then a few don't make it. And I wondered if it had similar sort of rates, and it seems like it has similar, if not better. So in terms of affecting the uh, the viability of those eggs, it seems like the translocation sort of conservation strategy isn't, if they're doing better or very similar to the stuff that wasn't translocated in Thailand, maybe? I, I don't know. That seems... No, it's, I mean, it's a credit to the people doing this yeah. because, um, yeah, excavating a nest, traveling with them to a new place and then setting them up again, it can't be easy. And, you know, these eggs, the female laid them there with intent. Exactly. They have to incubate a certain temperature yep. and you can't let them roll over or anything like that because the neonates will drown inside. So they've definitely been extremely careful. And I think it's great that there's like, you know, hundreds of baby king cobras which have been released successfully as a result of this um, conservation action. I think obviously anyone can see that this isn't a long-term solution because you can't just pick up all the snakes and move them to places where people aren't because eventually there won't be any places left where people aren't. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's how they end the paper, isn't it? It was basically, well, this is basically our only option for keeping king cobras safe or king cobra nests safe in this region we need something to stop people from just hammering king cobras like there's your long-term solution yeah i don't know yeah yeah and, yeah and i mean persecuting these animals is a relatable stance because they're incredibly dangerous and um 
Although they're not, because, you know, they actually don't bite that many people. A bite from one is likely to be fatal. So you can understand where the hostility comes from, you know, showing the landscape with an animal that could just randomly end it. Yeah, you can understand where the fear comes from. I'm not sure you can understand the hostility because it does need to be prompted. I'm not sure if king cobra bites are really comparable to snakes that you get bitten by accidentally. Yeah, no, no. I think there's probably a much higher proportion of king cobra bites that are as a result of being mucked about with than, say, like vipers. Right. Because you're not really going to tread on one by accident. Yeah. Or bump into one sort of knee height in a bush. Yeah. Yeah, you know, you're trimming the hedge in your garden, green pits just there, bites your finger, easily accident. King cobra would be well out of the way unless you're trying to grab hold right. of it. Right. I don't know. I think king cobra is a, a nice example of one that can probably just be solved <laughs> because I think they're probably more ecologically positioned and temperament wise positioned to uh, just be calmly escorted off the premises. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, um, yeah, that's our mixture of conservation good and somewhat good news. I mean, it's better than nothing news. I think I think what's it's success in terms of the hatchling success rate, I think that's wonderful news. Yeah, but the smashing, not ideal. So let's move on. Have you got any other business for this episode, Ben? I don't have any, any other business for this episode. Okay, so I've just got one thing. You'll remember a few episodes ago, we were talking about tortoises. It was gopher tortoises in their burrows. Oh, yeah. I made, about them reversing I, in. And I told everyone that they could only reverse in. We've already been corrected on this once, which was hilarious. But we've had another email, this time from Dr. Kevin J. Loop, who is a research scientist in the Department of Fish and Wildlife Conservation at Virginia Tech. And uh, yeah, he basically has emailed and fleshed out. I don't think he listened to the episode yet where we were corrected. But regardless, there's more news Obviously, they, the last thing I said was that gopher sources don't only reverse into their burrows. They can, <laughs> they can rotate. And they can also <laughs> spin around in there. But Kevin said, I was just catching up on some herp highlights listening this morning and was delighted to hear your recent episode about gopher tortoise burrow longevity and collapse. A rather trivial note about gopher tortoises. They can do three-point turns, more of a stationary 180-degree I was going to say, I love the idea burrows. of a three-point turn that they've got a really lame turning <laughs> angle, turning circle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they can actually just spin on the dime <laughs> i mean and so legs, yeah, like a tank kevin goes on in fact burrow width near the entrance typically corresponds closely with the occupant's length which we already knew presumably in order to facilitate them it's, turning around yep, yep 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 he does say there's exceptions when the occupant is a smaller tortoise who lucked into an abandoned burrow built by a larger one they might have a burrow that is much larger than they are wide. And then he says, as the esteemed Jack Christie can well attest, they will readily scoot headfirst or buttfirst down into the burrow when approached, and especially when sprinted at and dived upon. <laughs> In my oh, <laughs> yes. biologist. The classic gopher tortoise sampling method. Yeah, they're biologists. These people are biologists. And it says, in my experience, they're quite fast in both directions, but extra speedy when facing into the burrow. In that position, they can also more readily dig in their legs on the sides of the burrow to prevent being pulled out by predators Mm. or face-planted field technicians. They will also rotate 90 degrees and wedge themselves in sideways to prevent being pulled out and to block other tortoises, often harassing males following females from following in into the burrow ah so like genius yeah they just use their body what's that called thagmosis yes like wombats yeah is it thagmosis i like the idea just Thag- the idea that they're basically most vulnerable if you catch them side on that's how you want to sample a tortoise so it can't see you coming because it's looking to your left 
It can't, you know, it's not going to be able to back away from you because it's behind his facing right. You've got to hit him on the flank. Best way to catch him, it seems. <laughs> oh, I can't remember the word for when they block. I was thinking of stigma taxes, but that's wall hugging. Oh. Can't remember now. Never mind. Either way, very funny. And uh, yeah, just serves to further flesh out the uh, lifestyles of these gopher tortoises, which obviously aren't only reversing into their burrows. Oh, and then Kevin said, I love the podcast. Keep them coming. <laughs> Thanks, <Excellent>. Kevin. <laughs> um, yeah, so um, that's all the other business I've got. Are you trying to work out this word? Yes. Yeah, I can see you furiously scrolling around on Google there. Is it phragmosis? Phragmosis, yes, remembered. <laughs> so yeah, phragmosis is any method by which an animal defends itself in its burrow by using its own body as a barrier. Excellent. We had it with Sicilians, didn't we? Because they have those yes. uh, excretions out yes. of their butts, which make them taste bad or feel bad when the predator well, tries to get them out of their Well, it was sort of blunt heart. too, wasn't it? It wasn't like a pointy tail. It was like a plug yeah, that like they a, could use to block a, up the, uh, yeah. the burrow. Yeah, yeah insane. Yeah. Cool. So um, yeah. That's everything for this episode of Conservation News. If you want to get in touch with us, if we've made an error, if you want to ask a question. Oh, yeah, we're going to start collecting questions from people. And then when we've got enough, we'll do a questions episode. Question blitz. Right? So, question blitz. So I'm going to add it as a perk for patrons that you can just like add us, give us a question. And then when we get enough, we'll do a whole episode. And they don't have to necessarily be specifically about herpetology, you know, like ask us whatever. It might be fun to have some other things about, like, I don't know. Maybe not whatever, but, like, within reason. Well, yeah, obviously, like, well, I don't think anyone's going to be asking you for your medical records, but, um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it just might be fun um, to have some, yeah, questions. We've already had a couple really good ones, which I'm saving up. So if you've emailed us a question recently, yeah, I'm saving them up to uh, do an episode. That's on an important point. It's, we're not ignoring them. They're being saved. No. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, I think um, you can get in touch with us on social media. Um, like I said, herphighlights at gmail.com. But yeah, that's about it. I think all that remains to be said is thank you for listening. Excellent. Thanks for listening.